Amen. Have a seat and grab a Bible. I hope you have a Bible. If you don't, we have some back there at the the, uh, doors. You can uh, take one for yourself and turn to page 1873. That's the page that we will start with in the Uniontown Bibles. If you have your own Bible, go to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. I hope you had a Merry Christmas. I hope you got all kinds of nice, good new clothes and get to wear them today. It was this or my really comfortable, oversized, and amazing Boston Bruins sweatshirt, so I decided I wouldn't wear that because I love y'all. And I've made a New Year's resolution that I'll tell you about. I made two, so I'll tell you about that in just a couple seconds. Any of you make New Year's resolutions this year? It's some, some of the greatest resolutions I've ever heard. I mean, this is, this is the time. If you're going to make a resolution, now's your chance. Some of the, what are some of the things you make? Maybe not you. People who need to make resolutions. What are some of the things they make resolutions about? What do you got? Shout them out where you are. Health, weight loss or gain, depending on who you are. Finances, exercise. What was that? Devotions. So I think what you find is our, our, our resolutions are stirred up by some level, at least to some degree, of discontent in our heart with who we are, right? Right? There's some level of, of discontent in us. So if we're making resolutions about our health, it means we're, just, we're, we're not happy with where we are health-wise. If we're making resolutions about how many times we're going to go to the gym, and, and for those of you who are longtime gym members and who go regularly, I apologize for what's going to happen to your comfort zone in the next two weeks. The attendance is going to quadruple, at least for two or three weeks. It'll die off. Don't worry. You'll, you'll have your treadmill back, I promise. It, 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 but, but the reason you would make that resolution or that commitment is because there's some discontentment in your heart. Um, there, there's, there's a lot of different resolutions that get, get made. One, one particular one that I've heard a number of times with people I hang with is this. I want to run a marathon. Anybody in here want to make that resolution, has made that resolution this year, you're going to run a marathon. Anybody at all? All right. So, so okay, there's one. I'm going to go boldly. And say this publicly so you all can hold me accountable. In 2019, I will not run a marathon. <laughs> Amen? <laughs> I'm going easy. That's all. I'm just going to go simple. There, there's, there's, that's one resolution. i got another one coming. You'll, you'll, you'll see here soon. Um, with our walk with Jesus, somebody said our devotions. I mean, that, that's, this is the time of year that uh, great plans are made to read through the Bible in a year. And by February, when you hit Leviticus, those plans are out the door. This, this, because there's, there's, some, there's some discontent in our heart, there's some unsatisfaction, this dissatisfaction within our heart about, about where we are in certain areas of our life, and so we tend to make resolutions about those things. This morning, what I want to encourage you in as we look at Hebrews chapter 11 is to be discontent, and that's a weird thing to encourage you to be in church, but I want you to be discontent with your walk with Christ this year. I want you to be unsatisfied with your walk with Christ. I want it to motivate you to resolve to live a life in in 2019 that is marked by true biblical faith. And that's what I want to spend our time looking at this morning is is true biblical faith. And and the reason I really have been drawn to this, we're going to do it this week and next week, is is I think for many of us, when we think of true biblical faith, we, we tend not to think of... Well, let's, let's do it this way. When you make a resolution, you do it with the greatest of intentions and the greatest of optimism. 
So if I make a resolution that this year I'm going to be dissatisfied with my walk with Christ so that way it drives me to a closer walk with him and I'm going to be discontent in that. If, if I make that resolution and I want to drive towards him and live a life of faith in 2019, I think we start with great optimism. But as soon as difficulty hits us, what am I wasting my time for? And, and I think if you truly understand biblical faith, that's an obstacle that we can remove. That, that, that we can walk a life of faith in 2019, particularly in the midst of hard times. Before we can jump into this, though, we've got to define what faith actually is. Um, I looked on uh, dictionary.com this morning because, you know, I'm pretty techie and all that. There's actually uh, nine definitions of faith. So let me, let me throw a couple things. Maybe we'll start this way. Let me, let me throw a few things at you this morning that, that aren't faith. Let me let, remove from uh, your imagination and your thought process things that are not faith. Faith is not the right knowledge of who God is and who Jesus is. That's not faith. James chapter 2 tells us that the demons believe that God is one. So that's not faith. That's just common knowledge. So that's not faith. Faith isn't the belief in the ridiculous. I think our culture looks at people who have a, a measure of faith or a level of faith and they say, okay, this is just a fun thing to engage in, but there's absolutely no connection with, with what you believe in and the real world at all. So this is where I would normally throw in the obligatory Ravens joke, belief in the ridiculous. However, two things. First, I'm a Ravens fan today. Please don't let me down. Okay, this is your one shot. And second, here's my other resolution for 2019. I will not make fun of the Baltimore Ravens in 2019. Instead, I will make fun of the Washington Redskins, which should not be very difficult at all. <laughs> Getting off to a big start, so. <laughs> no, but we, we, sometimes we think, you know, it's a belief in the ridiculous and the belief in the things that don't matter. And I know there's some young people with us, some kids here this morning, so I'll be careful, but, but our kids believe some things that are pretty ridiculous. Certain people visit your home. Okay, that's not faith. Faith isn't what the, the lunatics around the world believe when they think, oh, Nessie's real. There's a Loch Ness monster. Or, or people who believe in Bigfoot, right? Or, or those of you who actually think that somehow we're going to make it through this winter without any snow. Not a chance. That's, that's lunacy. And so what some people believe is, oh, Christians in that level of lunacy, they just believe in Jesus. That's not faith. Faith isn't the ability to maintain a belief in the midst of pressure to yield to the unbelief around you. Let me say that again. Faith isn't the ability to maintain belief in the midst of pressure to yield to unbelief around you. That looks like this. My, what a great faith you have. That's not faith. That's a very subtle shift from who deserves the focus in that moment onto you. It's a very subtle, and it seems like it would be appropriate. I want everybody to know what great faith I have. That's not faith. That's not driven by a desire to have faith. That's a desire to be seen and not by the one who matters. So, so I'll share this. It's a little off topic, that's okay. Um, so weddings, occupational hazard of a pastor, just real reality, okay? 
Um, particularly because when I began ministry, I did 10 years of ministry, uh, and at the core of my responsibilities was I was a single adult pastor. So as a singles pastor, uh, you're doing a lot of weddings because they like to jump out of your ministry as fast as they can, evidently. So I was doing a lot of weddings, and, and one of the things that I was taught early in ministry was, I, you guys know me by now, you know, I'm a happy-go-lucky, goofy laugh, you know, I, I can make a joke about almost anything, I can smile a lot, I get serious when I need to, but you know, hey, 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 weddings, I'm like that too, except for one moment. Some of you have been involved in your weddings, there's one moment in weddings that I take incredibly seriously, and that's at the very beginning of rehearsal. And I gather everybody, they introduce themselves, do some crazy things, I explain what's going to happen, and then I launch into this. Let me be very clear with you. As happy-go-lucky as Frank is, in this moment, I will not be. Because in this moment, our responsibility as, as, as the one who's officiating the wedding and as those of you who are uh, uh, attendants in the wedding is this, our responsibility is to make sure the bride gets the wedding she wants. Therefore, if you have an opinion about how the wedding should go, good for you, keep it to yourself. If we want an opinion, we'll ask for it. Otherwise, no, no, you don't get to talk. Now, if I catch you talking, I'll say something to you. The bride and groom have been uh, given permission to ask you to stop. If I hear you say something, I most certainly will ask you to stop. And if it progresses to a certain place, I will have to remove you from rehearsal. Any questions? Now, do you know who is the most frequent offender in that moment? Moms. Now, I can stand before you and say, I've only, I think, out of, I've, I've lost count of how many weddings I've done. I think I've only had to say something to moms. I've had to make comments here and there where it's like, okay, they're kind of edging in. It's like, hey, come on, keep your opinions to yourself. And actually, they kind of self-police. Like if a bridesmaid's like, I think we should hold our hands like this. The other bridesmaids are like, he said no opinions. I mean, so it's kind of a nice thing. Um, but I've only really had to say something to um, moms probably five or six times. And only once I had to remove mom from the rehearsal? Yeah, tell me about it. Here's the worst part. It wasn't just one. It was both moms, same rehearsal. I had to remove them to the back of the sanctuary, out the back doors. Everybody else was in here, and I'm like, are you kidding me? Um, thankfully, they didn't go to our church, so I didn't care if they were mad at me. I just needed to make sure they were at peace with the daughter, so it was all good. Um, but, but, but in that moment, what happens is there's this subtle shift off of what you should be paying attention to which is the bride, and it's very subtle. And it's not even a full step. It's probably just a half step. And the shift in focus becomes about the one who wants to do things her way instead of the one who deserves things to go her way. The, the shift in focus from having faith and having everybody else look at you and say, what a marvelous faith you have, is similar. It's that, that very subtle shift. So then we've talked about what faith is, and let's talk about what, what faith is. It's, it's, okay, so again, it's, it's not a knowledge of who God is. Even the demons believe and shudder. It's not a belief in the ridiculous. It's not an inner gumption to keep going through the hard times, like, I need to hold on to my faith. I need to, that's, not, that's not faith either. Faith is defined for us in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Let's look at it together. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. There you go. There's the definition of faith. Faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. That cleared it right up, right? Faith is 
anticipating the promises of God will come through no matter how long it might take. What this is saying is is you have this understanding and this reality that there are things that you cannot see, but you know the one who sees all, and he can be trusted. Faith is taking God at his word. That's the most basic, boiled down, brass tacks definition of faith that I'll refer to throughout the rest of the message this morning. Faith is simply taking God at his word. And what the author of Hebrews does for us is walks through some of the most familiar names in the Old Testament, the the who's who of the Old Testament, and he illustrates for us what he's talking about and what faith looks like. So so look with me, starting in verse 4. Starting in verse 4, let's read a a number of the verses and and kind of walk through some of the pictures the author of Hebrews gives us to help us understand what faith looks like. Verse 4, by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain did. Let me, let me stop there. This is going to be a problem because there's like a ton of stories in this passage, so i got to try to keep reading as best I can. But just right there, by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain did. Well, okay, you know the story, how, how God commanded what was to be offered, it was supposed to be? What was that? First fruits. Good. Just checking your... Your Old Testament not. So the first fruits. So, so, so uh, Abel is supposed to bring the first fruits, and Cain is supposed to bring the first fruits, except Cain thinks, I know how I'm going to please God. I'm going to bring something different. Doesn't sound too much like us, does it? So the author of Hebrews says, no, Abel offered to God the better sacrifice because he took God at his word and brought the offering that was acceptable. By faith, he was approved as a righteous man because God approved his gifts. And even though he is dead, he still speaks through his faith. Verse 5, by faith, Enoch was taken away, and so he did not experience death. I don't know if you're familiar with the story of Enoch. He was 365 days old. He and God had a very tight relationship. They were walking along together. And um, Ray Stedman the theologian, and he says, he says the, the way I read the story is Enoch and God are walking throughout the day like they regularly do. At the end of the day, it's time to head back and bring, bring Enoch home, and God looks at Enoch and says, hey, we're closer to my place than yours. Why don't you just come with me? And, and Enoch is taken into heaven with God. He was not to be found because God took him away, for before he was taken away, he was approved as one who pleased God. Now, just so you know, without faith, it's impossible to please God, so obviously Enoch had faith, since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, after he was warned about what was yet seen and motivated by godly fear, built an ark to deliver his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. So let's, let's talk about Noah for a couple seconds here. Let's, let's talk about this incredible story. Now, in order to do that, we've got to go back. So you go back to the garden. You go back to the very beginning of creation. And the triune God, in his triune perfection, you've got God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They already all exist. They coexist. They're co-equal, yet different. It's this, this incredible picture of the Trinity. And they create, and they create everything good. And so everything that they create is intended for man to enjoy and to use, to, 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 to motivate and to um, equip his worship of God. And so, so every piece of food that was given to man in the garden, man and woman in the garden, they were supposed to, to, to eat of the food. And while they were eating, they were worshiping the God who gave them the food. And that worship was how good, how great, how glorious is this God who has blessed us with this incredible gift of food. 
they would drink, and it was a worship event. As they drank, it was how good, how great, <clears throat> excuse me, how glorious is this God who has given us this gift of good drink. Their relationship together, Adam and Eve's relationship together, it wasn't something that was terminated upon. It wasn't something that was the, the final culmination, culmination of everything they did. It was, this is a relationship. How, how good is this relationship? But how great is the God who gave me this relationship? It was a worship event. And then sin came in and fractured everything. And so now, we eat we don't eat to worship, though. We don't eat to worship. We, 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 we eat, and instead of allowing the food to please our palate and our bellies and to be satisfied with what it is that we are eating and recognize the fact that this is a gift from God, instead of that worship rolling up to God, it ends on the food, and we worship the food, and now we have gluttony. Or we eat, and we never spend a second thinking about where that gift came from, and we're indifferent. Same thing's go, th thing goes for, for drink. We, we drink, and instead of it being this moment where we can celebrate who God is and the good gifts he has given to us, we worship the drink, and now we have alcoholism. Or we're totally indifferent to it. Or in the realm of relationships, instead of being able to, 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 to uh, as much of a joy as it is to be loved by these people and to love these people, instead of allowing that to be a part of motivation for our worship to God, now it's become the object that we worship. And so now instead of enjoying the love that we get to share and to be given, now we are so dependent upon their acceptance, we worship them instead of God. The things have gone really, really badly, and then it just continues to get worse and get worse. You get to the beginning of Genesis chapter 6, and you find that God grows tired of our arrogant rebellion, and he makes the, the choice, the purposeful choice in his heart. He is going to kill everyone. Now, the question I have is, why in the world do we decorate our nurseries with Noah's Ark stuff? Right? But somehow God looking down sees Noah and God decides he's going to pour his grace on Noah because God has made a promise and he's going to bring judgment but he's still going to be faithful to his promise. So in that moment that he brings the flood, you got to remember that God is the one who brings judgment and the one who brings rescue at the same time. Ever heard of that one before? If that's not a foreshadowing of who Jesus is, I don't know what is. Romans 3, 26 actually tells us he is both just and the justifier. Noah's told to build an ark, and all he has is God's word to him. So he takes God at his word, no matter what it cost him, and he builds the ark. Even though Noah didn't see the storm clouds or even feel the raindrops, even though what he was instructed to build by God was literally a thousand times bigger than his family actually needed. Even though he was building this huge ark 500 miles from the closest ocean, Noah still took God at his word and built the ark. Now, if you know the story of Noah, as it carries out after the flood, it goes evil immediately. So now God works through a man named Abraham, and we read about him starting in verse 8. By faith, Abraham... When he was called, 
obeyed and set out for a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance. So he went out, even though he didn't know where he was going. By faith, he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise, living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, co-heirs of the same promise. See, Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself, when she was unable to have children, received power to conceive offspring, even though she was past the age, since she considered that the one who had promised was faithful. Therefore, from one man, in fact, from one as good as dead, came offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and as innumerable as the grains of sand along the seashore. See, Abraham was home, and he was comfortable, and God called him out of his comfort, out of his home, out of his country, and he said, you're going to go, and you're going to be blessed, and you're going to bless all other nations through you, and so I want you to go, and so Abraham packed up his stuff and went. He just didn't have a clue where he was going. I know some long car rides may feel like that to you, depending on who's driving, but this was a little more significant. Something I want to point out first, and I should have done this earlier, but as you go through Hebrews 11 and and see the faith of these Old Testament heroes, please understand these people never believed without reason. No matter how crazy the thing was that God called them to, they never believed without reason. They had plenty of reason. God can be trusted no matter what. So Abraham journeys even though he has no idea where he's going, but he's going because he's taken God at his word. Abraham was told that even though he was so old, I love verse 12, he was as good as dead. Um, there's a lot of discussion out there with Abraham. You know, he's 90s. You know, that, that's like today's 30s. I mean, they lived forever. So, so for him to have a baby at that age, that's nothing miraculous. I'm sorry, when God says you're as good as dead, it means you're old. But Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Even though it made absolutely no sense logically, Abraham trusted what he couldn't see to the one who could see everything. And Abraham and Sarah had a baby named Isaac. This miracle baby. Look at verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, tested, offered up Isaac. He received the promises, and yet he was offering his one and only son. The one to whom it's been said, your offspring will be called through Isaac. He considered God to be able even to raise someone from the dead. Therefore, he received him back, figuratively speaking. So when God called Abraham to sacrifice the miracle child, Isaac. He obeyed immediately. He obeyed immediately, and and, and he took God at his word. And and actually what we find in verse 19 is something we didn't hear back in Genesis. We hear that the reason, that the, the thought process that was going through Abraham's head was, God said he was going to give me a multitude of generations that would flow through the bloodline of Isaac. Here is Isaac. God just asked me to kill Isaac, all right? So how does a multitude of generations through Isaac and dead Isaac, how do those go together? 
And what's revealed to us here is that we don't know when, maybe as Abraham's climbing up the mountain, knife in hand, ready to sacrifice his son, he says, you know what? God's good to his word all the time. God can always be trusted. God is completely faithful. He never lies. He's going to make sure that I have generations through Isaac, and I'm going to kill him. He must be bringing Isaac back from the dead. He took God at his word. He took God at his word. Um, Abraham is a fascinating person to study in Scripture. As ragingly imperfect as he was, he sees God as the one who can be trusted time and time again. I mean, the rest of this chapter just continues to illustrate this. Look, look at verse 20. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning the things to come. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, and he worshiped leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, as he was nearing the end of his life, mentioned the exodus of the Israelites and gave instructions concerning his bones. Let me stop there just for a quick second. The the, the idea of Joseph, upon coming to the end of his life, telling his people, listen, I'm going to die. You're going to bury me. When you guys get out of Egypt, don't leave me here. Take me with you. That's amazing because what that shows is that Joseph continued to take God at his word. The exodus wouldn't happen for 300 years. And yet Joseph was fully convinced in his mind because God had revealed to him that God was going to lead them out of Egypt. And so Joseph's like, hey, when you go, bring me with you, which is a little creepy, you know. Kind of, kind of gross, but it's okay. Don't leave me behind. Look at verse 23. By faith, Moses. Moses, after he was born, was hidden by his parents for three months because they saw that the child was beautiful and they didn't fear the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and he chose to suffer with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin. Moses considered his reproach for the sake of Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt since he was looking ahead to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt behind, not being afraid of the king's anger, for Moses persevered as one who sees him who is invisible. Did you hear that? That's faith. Moses persevered as one who sees him who is invisible. Moses persevered like God was standing there the whole time. You know why? Because he was. And he is. By faith, Moses instituted the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch the Israelites. By faith, now talking about the Israelites, they crossed the Red Sea as though they were on dry land. When the Egyptians attempted to do this, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after being marched around by the Israelites for seven days. Now, now it's, it's interesting. The things that we take for granted sometimes throughout the Old Testament, I mean, think about the Israelites coming out of Egypt, being led by Moses, coming nose to nose with the Red Sea and the angry Egyptians chasing them. Moses raises his staff. The waters part. Which one of you is the first one in? Right? But there is a level of trust in the God who can't be seen, but knowing he knows and sees all things. That's not impressive. It's important for you and I to maintain. And so the Israelites in an act of faith that is hard to comprehend, step foot on the dry ground between the walls of water and march across the Red Sea. 
The Egyptians follow suit, and the water crushes them. The Israelites are the ones that are mentioned here. The story is found in Joshua, uh, I think it's chapter 6, well, the, the, the surrounding and the takedown of this mighty city, Jericho. I mean, you, you, you are familiar with that story. God calls Joshua, who's the new leader of all these people now. This is the crazy part. This is like his maiden voyage out there. This is his, his first leadership decision. He meets with God, and God says, here's your battle plan. Let me lay it out for you. You're going to get the band. And I want you to walk around the city seven times. And, I want you, and, 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 and poor Joshua's got to be like, you've got to be kidding me. So he gathers the people, and he's like, hey, do we have a band? No, all right. Any of you play flute? Good, come here. What are you going to do in that situation? Let's just march around this place a couple times and see what happens. Even the Israelites demonstrated a taking of God at his word. They demonstrated the fact that the things they couldn't see, they, they, they would trust the one who could see it all. And they leaned into him in those times. Let's continue reading. Look at verse uh, 31. There's so much here. (laughs) By faith, Rahab the prostitute welcomed the spies in peace. Didn't perish with those who disobeyed. Man, what more can I say? Time is too short for me to tell you about Gideon. You know the story of Gideon, right? Too many people. God whittles it down. 300. Okay, get rid of your weapons too. Let's just shout the sword of the Lord in Gideon and see what happens. And he conquers this mighty army. Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets. Time's too short for me to tell you about all those. These people by faith, verse 33, conquered kingdoms and administered justice. So, so think um, Joshua, um, Solomon, David, I mean, that's who they're talking about. These are the people who conquered kingdoms and administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions. Think Daniel in the lion's den. Quenched the raging fire. Think of Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They, They quenched fire. They escaped the edge of the sword. You think about Jeremiah in chapter 26 of the book Jeremiah. He, he, there are other prophets being killed, but somehow Jeremiah escapes it in unbelievable circumstances, but Jeremiah escapes. He gained strength in weakness, became mighty in battle, put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Think about that in the ministry of Elijah and Elisha, the the widow and the Shunammite woman. They they both received back people who they had lost and thought were gone forever, and yet God raised them. These things are amazing. And this list, it it can show us what can be accomplished and what we can enjoy and experience in our walk with Christ as we demonstrate faith, as we demonstrate taking God at his word. But the problem is, we see that list and we think that's normal. We think that's the, the normative way of life. That if I have pure faith, that the, the result is conquering kingdoms, great escapes, shutting the mouths of lions. I mean, how many of us would love to shut the mouth of a lion? 
But we need to keep reading, don't we? Let me, for, for effect's sake, for the, for the way that the author of Hebrews wrote it, let's go back and start in verse 32, because what you're going to find is the list we've already read, there's not even a transitional sentence before it changes. Verse 32, and what more can I say? Time is too short for me to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the raging fire, escaped the edge of the sword, gained strength and weakness, became mighty in battle, put foreign armies to flight, women received their dead, raised to life again. Other people were tortured, not accepting release so they might gain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings, as well as bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They died by the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins, in goatskins, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and on mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. And all of these were approved through their faith, but they didn't receive all that had been promised, since God had provided something better for us. They would not be made perfect without us. Did they mess something up? Why do you have one side of the list and the other? Did they, well, they mess something up? Well, wait, let's talk about who, who they are. Who are the people who were mocked and scourged? Well, that would be the prophet Jeremiah. Did he mess something up? Let's talk about the, the, the ones who were stoned to death. Let's talk about the, the fellow named Zechariah in Second Chronicles chapter 24. Did he mess something up? How about the one who was sawed in two? You ever heard of a guy named Isaiah? Does that mean God isn't true to his word? Did God drop the ball? No, I know, I know. They used the wrong technique. When they were trying to put the armies to flight, they used the wrong technique. Instead of an air war, then ground war, they went ground war, then air war, and so they suffered the constant. Wrong technique. Wrong technique. When they went to shut the mouths of lions, they should have put their arms around his mane and grasped their hands like this because it's a much tighter grip. But instead, those fools, they went around, they went like this, the lion, and then ate them. Maybe they just didn't read their Bible enough. Hey, it's time for a reality check, folks. The second half of that list is far more normative than the first. Far more of us won't be shutting the mouths of lions we'll be running for our lives as they chase us down. 
See, the reality is these people took God at his word, just like everybody else. They held nothing back. I mean, even, even when it got difficult, even when it got hard, even when it meant exclusion, even when it meant persecution, even when it meant death, they still trusted God. They still took God at his word. They still believed that the things they couldn't see were being seen by God himself, and so they entrusted themselves to him. See, we've fallen for a lie. That faithful Christians are protected from persecution, from suffering, from hardship, from death, from disease. And we've fallen for that lie. It may make you feel better, but in the end, a lie does nothing but crush your soul. And so my hope is that we would recognize where we have attached ourselves to the lie and, and, and we, would, we would repent of that, we would turn from that, and it would drive us to pursue Jesus all the more. But my fear is that the lie has done so much harm in us because we believed the lie when the goodies don't come, when we expect them to come because that's what the lie says. We're crushed. We're crushed when we don't get what we think we're supposed to get. I mean, all of these people at the end of 11, they, it says none of them received all that was promised. But, but there's a word that, that, that we need to insert there because I think it helps us understand what the author of Hebrews is saying. None of these received the promise yet. God has something better in mind than we could ever imagine. So taking God at his word does not mean everything in life is going to line up for you. It doesn't mean that you, you're guaranteed success or even safety. Taking God at his word means you understand that God sees and you don't. And that God is worthy of being trusted no matter how difficult the situation. I, <laughs> so I've been, I've been playing. So, oh, I should have said this at the beginning. I apologize. Your bulletins say 2 Corinthians chapter 4. That's because that's what I was intending on preaching this morning. Um, I was preaching, intending on preaching Hebrews 11 next week, but I'm, I'm flipping them. It just seemed more appropriate to Hebrews 11 at the beginning. So I've, I've had this plan in my mind for four or five months, just praying that God would lead and direct what we're supposed to go over these two weeks here, kind of the interim two weeks before we start a series in the book of Philippians, which I'm excited about. But, but as I, I became convinced that this was where we needed to go as a church family, I'm going to be very honest with you. I have been broken because I don't know what God's preparing us for. This isn't prophecy, so don't freak out like, oh, great, Frank just said my car's going to break down. That's not what I mean. I mean, <laughs> but my, my, my personal experience in my own walk with Christ is that God gives me an anchor to hold on to before I need it. So, <laughs> I'm in. And I'm praying you are too. I'm praying that in 2019, we will take God at his word. 
And that starts at the very beginning, folks. It starts way back, even before what we're even talking about. It starts at the very beginning where we understand and wrestle with the fact that, that we know, we take God at his word. God is awesome, and we are not. And every single one of us has sinned and rebelled against him. But because he is loving, merciful, and gracious, and patient, he provided a payment for our sin in Jesus Christ. And, and Jesus, death, burial, and resurrection point to the fact that in Christ, no matter what happens in 2019, we have everything we need. So um, take him at his word. That's like the who's who of the Old Testament here. Um, And as a result, you can't end 11 without reading the first two verses of 12. Therefore, therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. Let's keep our eyes on Jesus, the the source and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despised the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So so what the author of Hebrews is saying now, all of that that we just talked about, all those people we just mentioned, all of those who shut the mouths of lions and then were devoured by lions, all of that they did because they took God at his word. Therefore, because so many of them did it, you and I need to start shedding sin. Let's start getting rid of sin. And then, then let's start getting rid of the morally neutral things that continue to trip us up. There's a lot of those, aren't there? And let's get rid of those because, because we need to be streamlined because this is our moment. That was theirs. This is what God has called us to. This is our moment. So let's fix our eyes. Let's, let's attach our faces to. Let's gaze upon. Let's think about Jesus, the beginner and the ender of, ender of our faith. As we do what? As we run <laughs> this stinking marathon. And it's the marathon that's been set before you. You don't run somebody else's marathon. You run yours. So what you need to understand as you take God at his word is that God has placed you where you are intentionally. God has allowed things to happen in your life, even the things that have brought suffering, because he loves you. That's a hard one. But he loves you. And so, admit, you can't see, but he can. And so he can be trusted. How do you know he can be trusted? How do you know he can be trusted in good and in bad and and, and everywhere in between? Because of what he says right here, he is the one who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He despised the shame for you. And he accomplished for you what needed to be accomplished. Man, he is enough. I mean, if you are slamming the mouths of lions shut or if you are being just devoured by them, God can be trusted. So may we who can't see trust the one who can all year long. Would you pray with me? <laughs> Lord, I, I um, again ask you for mercy. 
I ask for strength for what we don't know that lies ahead. God, there are people sitting in this room who've got to be thinking, not more. And I know, it's a lot. But Lord, through thick, through thin, through easy, through difficult, through joyous, through deeply sorrowful, God, you can be trusted. And so, Lord, I pray that in the moments of great joy, in those moments that are thick with tears, that we would simply fall on our faces before you and take you at your word. Thank you for Jesus. And he, he is not just a picture. He's the real thing. He is the one who is the only worthy sacrifice and substitute for us. May we remember how far you were willing to go to rescue us from this darkness. For it's in Jesus' good name I pray. Amen.